0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Hannah Moyer, Senior Medical Writer and Moderator for EMJ. And today I am delighted to be bringing you a series of three conversations on osteoarthritis, redefining the way we consider this chronic condition. This podcast has been sponsored by Viatris. In our final episode, we look at the end stage of the disease of osteoarthritis with considerations and options therein. Firstly, we have Professor Ali Mobasheri, Professor of Musculoskeletal Biology in the Research Unit of Health Sciences and Technology within the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ulu in Finland, and is also Chief Researcher and International Advisor in the State Research Institute Centre for Innovative Medicine in Vilnius, Lithuania. And we also have Dr. Daniel Kenta White who is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware and the director of the Delaware Activity Lab in the United States. So let us start with the fact that we identified in the other episodes that osteoarthritis is signified by um, the symptom of pain as a kind of an overarching um, burden. So um, when we talk about end stage of osteoarthritis, how are, how is, Chronic pain, or even the disability that is associated, managed at this stage of the disease. Perhaps Dan, you could you could start us off.
1: Yeah, uh, that is a really important question. Um, so, a rheumatologist, uh, Jillian Hawker, uh, several, I think, over t- uh, fifteen years ago, did a a really innovative. Uh, foundational study where she um, studied pain experiences of people with osteoarthritis and uh, did this using a, a qual- what we call a qualitative approach. Essentially, I know this sounds silly, but simply just talking to people and writing down themes and what were common themes uh, that were associated with this and found uh, that the pain experience for people with osteoarthritis moved from um, pain being intermittent or on and off to being more constant. But the more troubling aspect was that uh, as the disease progressed, uh, pain went from being uh, predictable, that is, you would know uh, if you did certain things that pain would come on, uh, to being unpredictable. That is, you weren't sure when it was gonna come on. And that was very troubling and very much um, Associated with uh, a discontinuation of many uh, daily activities uh, and and and, and uh, you know essentially stop this, full stop with with, with most things, um, I think that in a sense uh, encapsulates the end stage of disease and is really when when people really indicative of the need uh, to seek uh, surgery at, at that point. When you are unable to function, uh, pain is unpredictable. Uh, It is constant. Nighttime pain is another thing that could just be a real limit on uh, quality of life. And so um, these aspects, uh, you know, all signs that um, the end stage has uh, arrived. And, you know, the total knee replacement is actually a quite effective surgery. Uh, it has uh, significant impacts on pain, physical function, and, and quality of life, which is uh, a very positive. Um, my, my one sort of thing I, I like to think of, however, is that there appears to be a rush to a knee replacement. And there is uh, a misunderstanding um, that, well, surgery is the only thing that can help. And while, in fact, again, the surgery is effective and can uh, definitely makes major changes on pain and function and quality of life, it is not the only option uh, for people at an earlier stage of disease. Uh, And what my, my fear and I think what happens a lot of time is people don't try uh, the lifestyle modifications. That is trying to be active, trying to lose a little bit of weight uh, before they try surgery. So, uh, and rather there's a, a rush towards surgery. So, so trying to manage the disease using these effective mechanisms of uh, of exercise and, and diet. Uh, if Th- those should really be tried first. That does not mean going to physical therapy once or twice and saying, all right, I checked the box. No, that means a real attempt at trying to be active and, and uh, uh, trying a diet. And, and then if that fails after a, r- a real attempt, then, okay, and you have these symptoms where pain is constant, it's coming on without... Um, any, in in an unpredictable manner, and you've really discontinued all your activities, well, then it's probably time for uh, surgery. So I hope that answers your question, Hannah. But those those are the sort of things that come into my mind.
2: Fully agree with Dan. Um, I remember sitting on a train from London to Amsterdam, next to a lady who was telling me she was a professor of English and linguistics. And she was telling me the story of her double hip replacement. She said, "It's transformed my life. I live a completely different life now, and uh the pain is gone, and I can really enjoy my life and uh i've got a I've got a new boyfriend she's he's fifteen years younger than me. The sex life is amazing so i mean she was full of um full of praise for the double hip replacement that she'd had and I've also spoken to people who've had um knee replacements and you know. It, as Dan mentions, it really works. It it um, has a significant impact on the pain and and, and the function, but of course, the, it's not the, the the same as having uh, the original joint, uh, especially the knee, because it's such a complicated structure. And I completely agree with Dan. It's uh, it's probably not necessary for all of those patients at the top of the pyramid that are given. Uh, that final surgical option. There are other ways to manage it, and that's what we want to try and encourage. We want to try and bring um, the the conversation about lifestyle management, diet, and exercise much earlier into this uh, patient journey. I live and work in Finland, and uh, we have, in my city of Oulu, we have many, many kilometers of uh, track for walking and cycling and i've recently taken taken up nordic walking and i know that people who've tried this really rave about it uh it increases um muscle strength range of motion stride length and and also cardiovascular health and you know it's it's nice to be able to have access to that kind of uh activity but the problem is actually urban design some cities in the world you cannot go and enjoy these these activities there are some parts in the world certain parts of the world where you cannot have the option to go and uh, exercise so you have to go to the gym you have to go to an enclosed environment so access to um, the outdoors can be an issue in uh, inner cities in uh, concrete jungles of the inner cities and that's other things that we need to think about in terms of managing OA in uh, in a metropolitan in a, in a, in a city uh, setting. So I think the issue of away management um, really goes far beyond, um, you know, I, I always like to think of the socioeconomic and political aspects of it. And this is why talking about the impact of the disease on the population really uh, needs to focus on engagement with policymakers, with um the spenders the uh, payers and uh, long-term if, if you like city and uh, um, development planning for, for metropolitan centers there has to be the green spaces there has to be opportunities for people to go out and um, exercise and of course the pandemic highlighted this this weakness in, in many of the uh, global uh, cities what do you think about that Dan
1: yeah, no, I, I I totally agree, and I think it. You know, Ali, I I I love the example of Nordic walking. I mean, I I think that's. Uh, you know, being in Finland, I, I I picture this sort of winter environment that has you know this. Uh, 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 s- Tracks set out, and you can go and 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 do your. Uh, Nordic skiing and your Nordic walking in, um, that's, that's very specific to, uh, to, to Finland and, uh, the, the, the Nordic countries and, you know, that, that, um, in, but in other countries that there could be something completely different, you know, and depending on what their setting is. Uh, and so, uh, you know in in the united or in, in in Amsterdam it might be biking right where they they have uh wonderful bike routes uh, uh set up and uh and in England maybe it's walking around the Thames and uh you know having uh uh you know tea and coffee and crumpets or whatever you know there uh i guess the point is that that activity isn't can be of a variety of different things it doesn't have to be specific to it, there's no specific activity that you need that is the magic bullet for uh, osteoarthritis uh, or, or for OA, but it, it's just being being active, um, and uh, that 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 is can be very contextual based on the environment you're in, and access to rehabilitation providers or or to healthcare in general can be very different depending on what country you're in. So you know, in westernized countries, where where or um, we have the luxury of having, you know, modernized healthcare, uh, but that might not be so true uh, in, in uh, other countries. Uh, you know, an interesting study that I had the pleasure of being a part of, we looked at uh, people who were in China who um, were awaiting a total knee replacement and compared them to the United States. And uh, a couple different things about the about China and the United States is that in China, the healthcare system is that you pay out of pocket for that total knee replacement. It is something that you are putting down essentially a year's wages uh, to pay for uh, the hardware that goes into, uh, you know, the, the the knee replacement. And in the United States, uh, uh, assuming you know you have health insurance. Uh, which most people in the United States do, uh, the health insurance covers uh, the hardware. So people are kind of agnostic. They don't really care so much about, you know, what sort of hardware goes in uh, in the United States. And from a functioning perspective, we uh, did a test where we had people uh, stand up as many times as they could uh, in 30 seconds. And uh, in the United States, Uh, The average was people could who now these again are people who are waiting They're at the end stage of disease and they're waiting for a knee replacement and in the United States People could stand up 12 times in in 30 seconds and uh, and that was considered okay well, you know, you should be able uh, uh, that that's limited and uh, that that is you know these people obviously want a knee replacement to to, uh, uh, to to address that issue in China in 30 seconds, uh, the patients could stand three times. So that's once every 10 seconds you could stand. So the pain and their weakness is so bad uh, that they could only do it three times. Now you think about the socioeconomic uh, pressure of having to pay a year's wages, well, it kind of makes sense that, well, it's got to be really bad before I, I have this knee replacement. And, you know, I hope that this illustrates the, the difference uh, in uh, expectation. So uh, uh, how that can be, uh, how that can differ between countries. Uh, just and one more thing, if I, if I can just add at the six months after uh, the knee replacement, uh, in this group of, it was about 50 people from China and 50 people in the United States, uh, both functioned uh, uh, at the same amount. They both improved to the same level where they could do uh, about 25 uh, chair stands uh, within 30 seconds. That's amazing. Uh, at six, six months after. so So despite starting slower uh, you know they were able to make up the difference, and this is a paper uh, published in Arthritis Care, sorry, uh, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab uh, in 2015. So uh, it, it's just a, just an illustration of how uh, culturally very it could be very different expectations, financial pressures that go into deciding to have a knee replacement, but nevertheless functioning afterwards can still uh, still be positive.
2: Yeah, huge, huge differences in different parts of the world and different cultures and the attitudes to this end stage, the uh, joint replacement. And we have to recognize that there are some parts of the world where it's not even accessible. You know, it's the world is a big place and there are certain countries in South America and sub-Saharan Africa where (laughs) there is no access to uh, total knee or hip replacement. You have to live with the original knees and hips for life, and we we actually recognize how lucky we are to live in uh, Europe and North America and the access that we have to medicine uh, and and to some of the surgical procedures and as as you said Dan, you know um, you know in China a person's willing to give up a year's salary to be able to stand more than three times in one minute, but in the US, there's obviously a much better level of physical functioning in uh, in a person who is or on a waiting list or about to have uh, total joint arthroplasty. But I think we need to think patients need to be told repeatedly that they can have a good life with osteoarthritis. And I want to go back to GLAAD and highlight the fact that it's also uh, beneficial for cardiovascular health and for reducing those other comorbidities that we discussed in the first podcast. And I think GLAD is yet another example of how a multidisciplinary, multimodal educational program can really increase uh, patient education, participation, and have a positive impact on their lives. And again, education, the impact of education cannot be understated.
0: So, so moving forward, where do we see um, the responsibility? Is it at an individual level, a healthcare practitioner level or a, a kind of policymaker level? What, wh- where do we, we, we go forward with this burden?
2: I think it's a joint responsibility between the patient and their healthcare provider. Obviously, the payer, the policymaker has an important role to play. We've already engaged with those groups to highlight the fact that osteoarthritis is a serious disease and it has serious uh, consequences on the lives and well being of patients worldwide. But I think the management of osteoarthritis is a joint project. And both the patient and the healthcare provider or if you like a multidisciplinary group of healthcare providers are uh, engaged in that process. They are joint stakeholders. That's that's my view on this topic.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's, um, it's going to take a village, <laughs> as Hillary Clinton said, you know, and uh, it, it, this is uh, just the same example of um, all the different stakeholders um, from the boots on the ground uh, level uh, providers and patients all the way up through uh, policymakers, insurance providers um, that, that everyone will have to get on board. And uh, make ch- positive change in the realm that they have uh, control over. So whether it's doing your homework as a healthcare provider and realizing well, activity or exercise is a real treatment, and that is important for me to tell my patients. Uh, for patients to to seek out uh, correct information uh, from from credible well, and from credible information from credible sources, and while that might be um, a burden to change your lifestyle, to to make the effort forward to do so, uh, to have good outcome, Uh, and then from insurance payers to providing uh, reimbursements for gyms or uh, even businesses for finding, being um, uh, uh, entrepreneurial and putting in places that people can be active and they will pay for it. Too. Trust me. Uh, but finding, being, uh, entrepreneurial in, in that sense, I, I think, uh, you know, and I would also say, uh, for, uh, Pharma to to be brave and while there's lots of carcasses on the road with decreased you know uh, failed sort of investigations continuing to try though I think that's so important uh, uh, for us to to not neglect the pharma pharmacology uh, aspect of disease or treat potential treatment for disease but continuing along those avenues uh, and then finally from policymakers to uh, broadcast public health image or public health messages that in uh, instill the importance of of activity and weight loss and that, uh, support, um, uh, you know, the, the long-term management of, of, chronic disease. So this could be, uh, regulatory things of creating reimbursement models that don't exist in the United States that, uh, typically support episodic care where it's just one one-offs. You have a you have a problem, you go to your insurance to give you six visits with a physical therapist and that's it. But changing the models to saying, okay, you have this disease that you'll have for the rest of your life, here's a model that works where you could periodically see a healthcare provider and we provide methods for you to, um, uh, to, to, to check in with them uh, throughout uh, your life, uh, that it, that is, um, uh, the, the research has shown to be cost effective. So so sorry for the long winded an- answer to that. But that, that's kind of the, some of the things uh, I was thinking of.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we can't expect people to think that they can be couch potatoes and wait for miracle drugs to start flowing through from industry to solve their OA problems. That's not going to happen. Um, We've seen some really interesting research um, about physical activity over the last few years. Um, There was actually a post um, in the... There was was an article in the Washington Post a few weeks ago about how sitting all day can cause health problems long-term, even if you exercise for 30 to 60 minutes three times a week. That was a really interesting piece because it just... Highlighted the fact that the lifestyles that human beings have adopted of sitting all day, that's where the problem is. And Dan, I think there's a group um, that we haven't done a systematic study on, and that's postmen, UK postmen. These guys are walking all day. And I think there would be an ideal cohort for looking at osteoarthritis, knee pain, and cardiovascular health and overall metabolic health. Because, you know, some of them, some of them drive vans and deliver parcels and and letters, but the rest are wheeling these um, trolleys around in the neighbourhood, and they're walking 30,000 plus steps every day. Um, I was talking to one a few months ago, during the summer, and he said to me, he's looking at his phone and his activity tracking. And on some days, he was clocking up as much as 40,000, 50,000 steps. That's incredible. So maybe we've missed the opportunity to study these guys, we should, we should, we should study them in a, in a really positive context. But the way society has evolved, the way the workplace has evolved, you know, we're increasingly expected to sit and stare at the computers. That's where the problem is. And I think that's where well, we, we need to work together to address, there are so many professions out there in the wor- real world that dictate this requirement of sitting down in front of a computer all day. And that's the cycle we need to break. Why can't we have some of our conference calls walking in the park?
1: Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I mean, Steve Jobs used to have walking meetings, right, Uh, in in Apple. That's how he would conduct his business. And uh, I will say that, yeah, the issue of sitting, which, you know, uh, in research we call sedentary behavior, is uh, an emerging area of research. And I'm happy to announce that the National Institutes of Health uh, have uh, sponsored a study that involves uh, a cohort uh, called the Johnson County uh, Health Study, or JOCO HS, uh, in uh, North Carolina, and uh, they are looking at uh, sedentary behavior with uh, sort of innovative monitors that go on, on uh, that objectively measure, you know, uh, sedentary behavior and how that relates to uh, outcomes that are uh, relevant for OAs. Uh, so things like pain, function, and, and health related quality of life.
2: I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm so glad yeah. you mentioned that because it goes back to the recent proposal by the FDA that new drugs for osteoarthritis have to have real impacts on pain function and the way patients feel and survive. So to summarize the FDA, wants the next generation osteoarthritis drugs to make patients feel better for the joints to function better and for those patients, the joints and the patient to survive. And this, um, approach to this sort of holistic approach to the welfare of the patient and maybe using uh, agnostic measures uh, such as uh, physical trackers, wearables, things that you wear and then you don't have to complete questionnaires. That's definitely the way forward in terms of assessing how a particular intervention such as weight loss or uh, weight loss combined with uh, physical activity or a new drug can actually impact on the well-being of patients, instead of asking them to to complete questionnaires. I know the questionnaires are the current gold standard in a lot of the clinical trials that are being undertaken, but there has to be a much more objective, less subjective way of assessing how they report their pain and function. And who knows, I'd like to be optimistic and say in about five years from now, maybe even less, maybe a few drugs will will be, Conditionally approved by the FDA based on assessment of wearables, the so called digital biomarkers, the next generation digital biomarkers, that we haven't had to take synovial fluid or blood from any of the patients. The physical, uh, physical activity trackers and the sleep trackers tell the whole story. That's where I think we need to
1: be. Amen to that. <laughs> Can't agree more.
0: So I think uh, the take-home is, until that time, it's to keep getting up and to keep moving. So um, that concludes today's discussion. Thank you to our experts, Professor Ali Mabasheri and Dr. Daniel Kenta-White for joining us today and sharing their insights around osteoarthritis, redefining the way we consider this chronic condition with our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, this is the final of a three-part series that can be accessed wherever you get your podcasts. These, alongside an informative infographic, can also be accessed via emjreviews.com.